The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I want to talk today about um, uh, the rise of, I've entitled this, The Rise of School Theology. (coughs) I want to talk a bit about how the context for theology changes within the 12th, 11th and 12th centuries, and how this has an impact upon the way that theology is done. I just want to make some broad methodological points to begin with. First of all, it makes a very simple point, if you like. Theology is a contextual exercise. Theology is done by real people in real physical, cultural circumstances. And that shapes the way they do what they do. And it's important to grasp that because what theology looks like changes in the 11th and the 12th century. And there's a great tendency, particularly among um, people who are interested in ideas, to always look for reasons for changes within the ideas themselves. You see what I mean? We're looking for, if you like, the way that theology is done changes. How do we explain that? Well, many people's instincts is to go and look at what the theologians are actually saying and try to work out why it changes on the basis of perhaps how their own ideas have changed. That is one possible solution to the reason why theology (coughs) changes over the years. (coughs) Another solution, however, is not just to look at the ideas themselves, but to look at who's thinking those ideas, who's writing those ideas, and in what context they're doing it. I make a distinction uh, sometimes when I talk about books. When you write a book, you don't just say something, you also do something. And sometimes working out what you're doing requires more than just looking at the words on the page. Try to think of an example. See an example somewhere. Trouble with silly examples is they never they always come to you spontaneously. They never come to you when you try to think of them. Um, the phrase "Have a nice day." Very simple example. You write it on a page. It could just mean the sort of bland farewell that you get from a shop in America. But in certain circumstances, the person saying "Have a nice day" could be being sarcastic, put down, or doing something cutting with it. In other words, you don't just say something when you use that phrase, you do something as well. And what theologians do when they write theological books is always more than just write theology. They're always doing something in their particular. And what I want to say today is one of the reasons why theology starts to look different in the 12th century is not because the theology itself is necessarily changing, though there are changes taking place. It's also to do with the fact of where these guys are doing theology and what they're intending to achieve by it. This also shapes the way they do things. There are two contexts, two intellectual contexts for theology. Given rather pompous titles, but I think they're quite useful. There is 
<coughs> called the diachronic context of any idea. And there is the synchronic context. All of you, when you do theology, will be working with these two contexts. What is the diachronic context? The diachronic context is all the baggage that you bring when you come to do theology. You are shaped by the traditions in which you stand. If you come from a Presbyterian background, that gives you a certain baggage when you come to do theology. If you come from a fundamentalist background, gives you a certain baggage when you come to do theology. When the great teachers of theology in the West over the years have come into classrooms to teach theology, they come standing within great traditions. Traditions of Trinitarianism, traditions of Anti-Pelagianism. There are all kinds of things in the background that shape and influence the way they do what they do. Theology doesn't reinvent itself every time a lecturer comes into a lecture theatre. What you do stands in relation to what has gone before. Sometimes you stand in positive relation to it, you're trying to develop it, replicate what's gone before. Other times you stand in negative relationship to it. You're rejecting it, refuting it. Either way, you are identifying yourself, if you like, in part by your relationship to the past. So what we have in the 11th, 12th century is a diachronic context, a context that goes back into the past where these guys have inherited much in the tradition that they're going to work with. The works of Augustine, the great Trinitarian creeds of the faith, the kind of questions that have been thrown up by uh, reflection upon predestination, free will, necessity, Trinitarianism over the years. They're going to be working against this background. We've talked a bit already in this class about the authority of the fathers for these guys. You come at scripture, but as you come to scripture, you also come looking for the consensus of what the church has said in the past, supremely in its confessions and creeds, but also in the writings of those that you regard as authoritative. That is the diachronic context of theology. And for us in the 11th, 12th century, it's Trinity, anti-Pelagianism, authority of the fathers. But there's also a synchronic context. The synchronic context is the things that come up in your day and age that perhaps make you use this tradition a slightly different way. The questions that are thrown up in your time that mean that you simply can't reprint or reiterate what has gone before. You need to come to some kind of synthesis, if you like, of what has gone before with the demands of the present day. It's the same today. It's the same today as it was in the 12th century. And the synchronic context for these guys in the 12th century, which we'll talk about in more detail later on, the arrival of Aristotle's writings. <coughs> Interface with Islam. These are the two big things. Two big things in the 12th century. Struggles with how to react to Aristotle, how to relate to Islam. But in all that I've said about the synchronic context, I've just focused on ideas so far, there are other things that change as well. I want to look in more detail at those today, because the synchronic context, the present in which you work, is not simply the ideas which you are combating, it's also the institutions and organisations for which you work. They make demands too upon the way that you do your job. One of the things that theologians, generally speaking, uh, and intellectual historians are bad at is paying due, taking due account of the institutions 
the organisations within which ideas are thought. We need to understand that Christian theology is shaped both by the Bible, by the tradition, by contemporary conflicts, but also by the people and the places in which it's taught. And that is a kind of a long preamble to explaining why theology starts to look different and to do slightly different things in the 12th century and beyond. I want to talk now a little bit about scholasticism. First problem you encounter when you try to talk about scholasticism, of course, is the definition. We all know scholasticism is a very bad thing. But very few people can actually give a satisfactory definition of it. If you, last thing you want to be accused of is that your theology is scholastic. Because various people over the years have imputed all kinds of things to the notion of scholastic theology, of which you do not want to be accused. It's rationalistic. It puts God in a box. It exalts system over biblical exegesis. I have to say that most of the people who make that accusation seem to me to be less adept as biblical exegetes than many of the best scholastics. Scholasticism, I want to suggest to you, is a method, not a philosophy. Catholics have known this for years. If you read, go to the New Catholic Encyclopedia in the library and you look up scholasticism and scholastic theology, you will find very good articles on scholasticism. They will tell you exactly what it is. <clears throat> Very good articles on it. It is a method, not a philosophy. If somebody's theology is rationalistic, that is not relevant to whether it is scholastic or not. Scholasticism specifically refers to the method of doing theology within the schools. That's what it means. The scholastici, the Latin word for the scholastics, the scholastici, were the theologians of the schools and it imputed no more than they taught their theology according to the rules and conventions of the schools. It would be better to translate scholastici into English as academics. A scholastic theologian is really an academic theologian, somebody committed to pursuing theology within an academic <coughs> environment. You know as well as I do that to say somebody is an academic theologian today doesn't tell you anything about the content of their theology whatsoever. I've been at countless conferences where people say, oh, yeah, Duns Scotus, he's terribly scholastic. And you say, well, what do you mean by it? Oh, well, when I read him, he just doesn't warm my heart. <laughs> to which you're well, well, I read him and he warms my heart. Why do you do that? Could be something better than just saying, it doesn't warm my heart. So scholasticism, if you're going to accuse a theology of being rationalistic or whatever, don't use the word scholasticism. It's a category mistake category mistake to use the word scholasticism in that way. Scholasticism means theology of the schools and if you grab, if you go to the Middle Ages, there are an awful lot of these scholastic theologians about and you try to work out what they have in common in terms of theological content, you'll be hard pushed to find anything at all. They're all scholastics. Wide variety of opinions on everything existed within the medieval scholastic curriculum. So scholasticism then is a method, not a philosophy. What is its method? Essentially, it is the method of question and answer. What is it that binds Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, William of Ockham, all of these other characters together? Is it some kind of all-embracing worldview? No. 
It is the fact that they pursue theology according to a method of question and answer. Why did they do that? Because that's a very good way of teaching theology. Essentially, scholasticism is the way theology was conducted within the academic environment according to question and answer. It was done that way because that was the way it was taught. Scholasticism is no more of a worldview than lecturing is a worldview. It was an approach to teaching theology. So often when people use scholasticism, what they really mean is rationalism. They should say rationalism. The question and answer method was very simple. I would come into the class and I would present you with a question. Does God exist? You would always start your scholastic debate with a question about does X exist? For the very simple reason that there ain't no point in discussing it if it doesn't exist. It's not rationalistic to say that, I don't think. I think that's sort of common sense, really. So there's no point in doing theology if God doesn't exist. So the first thing I'd come in and say, does God exist? And then I would call upon Emmanuel. Yes. I would say, give me five reasons why God exists, Emmanuel. You don't have to do that now. <laughs> Emmanuel would then give me... I'm sure you could, Emmanuel. Emmanuel would stand up and he would give me five reasons why God exists. I would then call on Peter. And I would say, Peter, give me one reason, based on an authority, why God doesn't exist. And you would stand up and you would quote me a line. Probably on this particular one, you probably couldn't quote a line of the scriptures. But you'd stand up and you'd quote some other accepted authority, uh, a leading philosopher or somebody. And you'd say, God doesn't exist because Aristotle says, dum -da -dum -da -dum. Then I would come into the fray and I would say, well, obviously, God does exist. And I would give some good, solid reason why God exists. And then I would go back and I would demonstrate why Peter's reason was wrong. I would say, Peter cited this quotation, but if you say it in context, or if you look at it from this angle or that angle, clearly a wrong, wrong argument. So each question you would have, if you like, a thorough exploration of the issue. And the point would not be that Peter really didn't believe God existed. The point would be to train people in the art of arguing, in the art of thinking taking a position, and then thinking of the strongest arguments against that position, and learning how to combat them. That's what scholasticism was. It's a great method of teaching. I recommend that you go away and look, um, get hold of some Thomas Aquinas, and just look at how he teaches. Don't put to one side the worldview and everything. Just look at the method of teaching. That gives you an idea of what's going on in the medieval lecture theatre. Question and answer. Um, you always have question followed by uh, reasons on one side of the argument then you would have the sort of what they call the said contra the but against that there you would have a if you like a one line knockdown based on an authority then you would have me coming in magister coming in with the resolution and the point by point refutation of whichever one of my two students had taken the position that was wrong I do recommend that you go away, get hold of a summer theologi or something, just have a look at how Aquinas operates. Get the content for a minute, look at how he operates, because that gives you the best insight that I know as to what's going on in medieval lecture theatre. <coughs> Carlos? Um, I guess in this method, uh, in terms of and such, I get uh, the connotation of asking questions that you should have asked more than being rationalistic. It's, it's Oh, how many angels dance on the head of a pig? Yeah. So, 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 like, well, I've already explained in this class that that's actually a very important question to ask. Did you know? 
<laughs> if you can remember. Yeah, yeah I think, um, well, that may be the case that scholastics ask questions that shouldn't be asked. But just asking questions doesn't require that you ask questions that shouldn't be asked. So it is not of the nature of the method that it requires that you ask inappropriate questions. Does God exist? Thoroughly appropriate question. Um, is Christ both God and human? Thoroughly appropriate question. Um, if you want to ask a speculative question, that is not because you're committed to the method of teaching by question and answer. It's because you have a defective view of the kind of questions that should be asked. So I want to say that scholasticism, it may have been excessive at points, but then so is non-scholastic thought. Essentially what you're dealing with here is a method. Um, in the Reformation, what you get is a lot of... The Reformers often talk about the scholastics, and they mean it in a pejorative way. But for them, it's just a catch-all, meaning Catholic theologians. And you actually find... I mean, you go to Calvin and you go to Luther, and they're trashing the scholastics, and then you're finding bits of scholastic method flicking up left, right, and centre in their thinking when you look carefully. And as I mentioned before, it's very interesting. In Calvin's Latin Institutes, he talks about the scholastic and it appears to be a blanket condemnation of the scholastic theologians. If you cross-reference it to the French edition of Calvin's Institutes, he talks about the theologians of the Sorbonne. French edition of the Institutes, of course, is going to be more widely read. Ordinary people like you and me are going to read the French edition, who perhaps you know, wouldn't want to waste time on, you know, we're French speakers, we don't want to waste time on the Latin. And what Calvin wants to do is make sure that when the common people get hold of his ideas, they're not seeing this as a license for trashing everybody. He wants to be more specific about exactly what criticism he's making. So, you know, I, often when I give this kind of lecture, people stick their hands up and say, ah, oh, but the reformers trashed the scholastics. I would say to them, well, again, go back to what I said at the beginning, they're not just saying something, they're doing something. Find out what they're doing when they trash the scholastics. And more often than not, they're thinking of particular individuals, or they're thinking of particular doctrines that aren't particularly scholastic doctrines. They just happen to have been taught in the schools by guys that the reformers experienced. Um, you see, you'll find, I think, in a lot of Dutch stuff, and I think it comes through into Van Til, where he, he will refer to scholastic thinking. I think he's simply using the word wrong there. He's probably making valid criticisms. But it's not the fact these guys are scholastic that's the problem. It's the fact that they hold to rationalistic worldviews or something. And he's making... Uh, he's just using language a bit carelessly there. The problem is that Protestants can be very arrogant. And... Up until about 20, 30 years ago, they never actually bothered reading what the Catholics said about scholasticism to see how scholasticism was understood to operate within the Catholic Church. Catholics have known that scholasticism was just a method involving question and answer for decades. But Protestants <coughs> thought that Luther and Calvin were the best guide to scholasticism, whereas in fact I think that is not technically, the, technically correct. So, I mean, on another level, don't read what I'm saying here as a blanket approval of scholastic theology at all. I'm making a point about care in use of language. So scholasticism, then, uh, somebody will say it involves the, uh, you know, infusion of Aristotle into Christian thinking. Trouble is, Aristotelianism, Aristotle is used in so many different ways by medieval and Renaissance thinkers. There is no such thing as the medieval Aristotle. He's used in contradictory ways by people who are all equally scholastic. So Aristotle doesn't give us the common ground. Every common ground you look for outside of the method of teaching and the context in which the teaching is taking place will ultimately prove an inadequate definition 
because there's somebody who's self-evidently scholastic, but the definition doesn't fit. So then, this points us towards the context in which scholasticism is taking place. If scholasticism is the theology of the schools, then we should look in part <coughs> to the schools to see why it is the way it is. And what you have in the 12th century is a move from the great cathedral schools to the great medieval universities. It's a crucial move in Western civilization, the development of universities. It is the thing, I think, that one of the strange things when you look back at history is how advanced Islamic civilization was for so long over against Western Christian civilization. And then in the 12th, 13th century, it all seems to go horribly wrong for Islam. And Islam becomes almost stuck in a rut, if you like, while Western Europe starts to take off economically and culturally. One of the reasons for that is the rise of universities. Increasing urbanization in the 12th century. Larger and larger urban populations. The cathedral schools in places like Paris. Catering no longer just for those who want to go in to a career of monastic contemplation. They start to teach international students. Secular students who want to do theological and philosophical studies but then go off and work in the civil service. Something like that. Cathedral schools get larger and then amalgamate. What you have in Paris is the amalgamation of a number of cathedral schools that becomes the great medieval University of Paris. Similar phenomena uh, you'll find in Oxford, in Bologna, places like that. You'll find the growth of a new institution, the university. And the university is interesting because it is, I suppose, what you in America would call a centre for the liberal arts. These are not just centres for the study of theology. They rapidly become centres that give you a basic grounding in the liberal arts, logic, grammar, rhetoric, etc., etc., the trivium and the quadrivium, and then allow you to study all subjects, law, theology, within the one broad organisation. And that, I think, is one of the things that distinguishes Western universities from Islamic universities, that you have a drive towards universality, if you like. The idea that medicine, law, theology can all be studied within the one organisation. <coughs> I've got here the, the earliest universities in Europe, Paris, Bologna, Oxford, Montpellier, learner. The model becomes so good and so successful that within a very few years you get universities being founded as universities. Places like Cambridge for example. But here you have in the 12th century the rise of a new institution of learning and that places new requirements upon those who teach individual subjects within a university setting. You are required to relate your subject to other subjects that are going on. This is another of the things that fuels scholasticism. It requires of its teachers, the existence of a university, the reflection, critical reflection upon curricula. How do we teach theology? 
What books do we offer? How do we relate what we're doing to what's being done in law, medicine, and these other disciplines? A whole host of questions rises within the context of a university that doesn't arise within the context of a cathedral school that's just teaching contemplative theology. And it's at this point, it's part as a result of this, that you get the move away from the kind of contemplative element that you find littered throughout earlier theology to a more, what one might say, scientific approach. Theology, different departments of theology are becoming narrowed and focused on the particular issues they address. If you read Ansel, you have there somebody attempting to engage in critical reflection upon the church's confession using the logical and philosophical tools that are available to him. But one of the striking things about Anselm is the amount of devotion that's littered throughout the text. Little prayers going off to God here and there. The whole thing is set within the context of devotion. Why is that? He's working within the context of a monastic community. He's a monk doing what monks do. And that is ultimately explicitly integrating their theology with their contemplation and their piety. <coughs> come to the great teachers at universities, sure, they have great devotional lives. I'm going to give you some prayers of Thomas Aquinas a little bit later on. There is that aspect that is separated to an extent from what they do in the lecture theatre. They might start their lectures with prayer, but then the lecture is the serious business of reflecting upon theology within a university setting. So it's in the 12th century you start to get the move away from the devotional, contemplative dimension of theology towards a more rigorous, intellectual, systematic engagement with the issues. That takes me back to my first point. One might look at Aquinas and look at uh, Anselm and say, hey, Aquinas doesn't stick as many prayers in his writings as Anselm does. Clearly there's some kind of decline in devotion going on here. Not necessarily the case at all. As I said, when you write a book, you don't just write a book, you do something. What is Aquinas doing? He's lecturing in a lecture theatre. Prayer every two minutes is not necessarily the appropriate thing to do in a lecture theatre. It doesn't make you more or less godly. It just means you're doing something very different. So the university creates demands that transform the way theology is done. Just give you a few uh, sort of boring, mundane details about the universities. They're often licensed by a local prince. That's important for the Reformation, of course. <coughs> Wittenberg University, where Luther uh, enjoys the, the greatest years of his career, founded by Frederick the Wise. One of the reasons why Luther survives is Frederick the Wise knows that having a controversial lecture there boosts student recruitment. <laughs> and it's in his interest. He founded the university. His honor is dependent to a certain extent upon the stature and status of his university. That's why, one of the reasons why Luther survives. Because Luther's good. If you can't have an orthodox lecturer, you want a famous controversial one. <laughs> That's what Frederick the Wise gets. So the fact that these things were founded by princes and licensed by princes is significant for the Reformation tradition. Also, students there were subject to canon law. They enjoyed what you call benefit of clergy, even the secular students. Benefit of clergy. If we had it here, you know, you go out and steal something from Chestnut Hill or something like that. Um, and the police come around to arrest you, you can claim benefit of clergy. Can't try me under civil law. I'm a member of a university. I have a right to be tried under canon law in the courts of the church. This too plays into the Reformation because the secular powers ultimately don't need it. 
they want to see ways of getting rid of this. But I, I mean, I was at Cambridge in the mid-80s, and there, um, there were still certain laws that applied on university territory that didn't apply in the wider world. The university had its own police force, the proctors, who could impose, legally impose fines, they could arrest you do various things, so there are sort of hangovers of this medieval tradition, even in some of the medieval universities today. But you could enjoy benefit of clergy. They were also self-regulating. Self-regulating then as now, academic freedom then as now, of course, is a relative thing. At the end of the day, you have to bear in mind the wider constituency. You've got to bear in mind the church. You've got to bear in mind the demands of the secular authorities. But by being self-regulating in a way that the monastic schools had hadn't been, different criteria were able to operate for recruitment and development. And it's at this point that you start to get what might call academic criteria becoming more important in teaching of theology. It's why, if you like, the monastic schools, 100 years previously, they were the intellectual powerhouses of medieval Christendom. Very soon that will change. The universities, they're at the urban centres, political power for a start. But also, the whole notion of what theological education is meant to be doing is changing. More academic and scholarly criteria are coming in. The great intellects of the later Middle Ages will be nurtured in the universities. It is, we shall be talking a little bit about Thomas Aquinas later on, it is a happy confluence, if you like, of events when Aquinas is born when he is and is nurtured in university and goes off, he and his order go on to be the dominant force within Catholic thinking right down to the Reformation. And at the Reformation again will get subtle shifts in the way education, religious orders are organised and the leadership mantle passes to the Jesuits and the Dominicans. Now, Thomas Aquinas' thought continues to be the single most important source of Catholic thinking down to, humanly speaking, down to uh, the Second Vatican Council. So self-regulating means that the pursuit of academic excellence is freed up. Um, and this becomes the means for recruitment, promotion, what we'd say today, staff development. Unfortunately, they were blissfully unaware of its dreadful free market these sort of terms that you get these days. <laughs> You haven't had a left-wing comment from me for a few weeks, so I just couldn't resist uh, <laughs> throwing one in at that point. So, the rise of the, of the universities then. That's the single most important thing, I think, in changing the way that theology is done. When you see a change in theology over the years, don't always assume, in the way that it's done, don't always assume it's sinister for doctrinal reasons. It could be for material reasons where the theology is being uh, Developed. Don't make the category mistake, if you like, of assuming that a change in form necessarily indicates a fundamental change in content. So, what else happens at this point in time? Well, I've said reflection on curriculum. That requires textbooks. And it's in this point in time that the great medieval textbooks emerge, those things that are done for teaching theology. You have the emergence of sententiae, and its close cousin, close cousins, the sumai, the sentenciae. What are the sentenciae? They are collections of sentences, collections of extracts from the fathers, topically organised. Nearest equivalent, I suppose, would be something like Alistair McGrath's Christian Theology Reader. 
you get the idea. You've got a book there. There's very little of McGrath in it. What he's done is helpfully arranged key passages from great theologians. Uh, topically, Doctrine of God, Doctrine of Creation, Sacraments, this kind of stuff. Good textbook. That's what you need in a textbook. Something that's organised. Something you can send your students to. Often made a comment to students in the past. Um, the key thing in a textbook is not that you agree with it, but that it's laid out clearly. I don't care what the doctrinal position of people that I recommend as textbooks is. All I need is someone who lays out the issues clearly and enables me to teach my position by interacting with arguments, documents that are laid out very clearly. That's what you get in the 12th century, the emergence of the sentenciae, collections of sentences gathered from the authorities, the creeds, the councils, the confessions of the church, the early church fathers. Supreme, of course, among the early church fathers in general in the sentences is Augustine. But look at any great book of medieval sentences and you've got a whole range of writers. Latin, Greek translated into Latin. The fathers collected, put into a book, topically arranged for use in the lecture theatre. We've talked in earlier classes about the Florilegia. <coughs> Similar things. Collections of great sayings of the fathers. The Sententiae represents a development in sophistication from the Florilegia. It's not simply collections of sayings. Topically ordered, but also the writer himself will comment on what he's doing. So he's stitching together a systematic theology, but giving his own running commentary, his own references and comments on different things. So what you've got is a step up from simply, Augustine says this, Ambrose says that, Athanasia says the other. You've got somebody trying to work these quotations, these sentences, into a coherent, systematic whole. It is, if you like, a move towards the modern theological textbook. The greatest author, of course, of sentences is Peter the Lombard, simply known as Peter Lombard, who produced his four books of sentences. His dates, roughly 1100 to 1160. Born in Lombardy, studied at Reims and then studied at Paris. Appointed Bishop of Paris in 1159, the day year before he died. What Lombard does is produce a textbook that gathers together the great sayings of the fathers along with a commentary from him under four books. Trinity, creation and sin, incarnation and virtues, and sacraments and eschatology. One could say that in Peter Lombard you get the first move towards systematic theology in the modern sense of the word. An attempt to really put together a coherent account of God in systematic form. It's mainly composed of extracts from the Fathers with a running commentary from Peter Lombard himself. This book becomes the most influential theological book in Western Europe prior to Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. We're still getting commentaries written on Peter Lombard in the kind of early modern period. Peter Lombard rapidly establishes itself as a classic. And if you want to teach theology anywhere in Western Europe in the Middle Ages, some point in your early academic career, you will be expected to give a series of lectures on the Book of Sentences, to work through lecturing <coughs> on Peter Lombard. 
Like Boethius's little work on the Trinity, it becomes a classic, it becomes a hoop that you have to jump through in order to teach theology. But that is why all of the great medieval theologians, if you look at their catalogue of books they wrote, somewhere down the line there's almost certainly a commentary on Peter Lombard's four books of sentences. And it does the job so well and so effectively, it isn't until um, Aquinas is summer theologian is really taken on board by the church that Peter Lombard goes into eclipse. So he provides, at a time when book production is slow and expensive, he provides in one volume the basis for theological education. So he was the famous sentence writer. We'll talk about the summer, summers later on when I talk about Aquinas. The other aspect <coughs> of medieval uh, thinking, and this is one that we mustn't forget and yet so often neglected, and that is the role of scripture. All the great medieval theologians were first and foremost biblical exegetes. That was how they started their careers as professors of Bible. If Aquinas is known now primarily as the man who wrote the Summa Theologiae, that is because later generations decided that that was the bit of him they wanted to pick up and develop. I'm sure that if he was in this classroom today, if you said, Master Aquinas, what do you think of yourself as? You would almost certainly have said a biblical exegete. All of these guys worked in biblical exegesis. The role of scripture is central to medieval Christianity. We might have questions about their exegesis. We might have questions about the way they construct their understanding of the relationship between the Bible and tradition in terms of authority. But you can't deny that they spent an awful lot of time expounding and preaching the Bible. That's simply true. Whether one likes the results or not, that is simply the way that it is. And the Bible, there was a textbook parallel to the sentences, the Glossa Ordinaria, the text history of which is laid out for you in that essay I've recommended you to read for next week. Essentially, the Glossa Ordinaria is a running commentary upon the Bible. What is a gloss? A gloss can be anything from a brief marginal comment giving you the definition of the word to something that tells you about the historical or geographical background to what's going on to something that brings out the theological significance of the passage. Essentially, what you have in the Glossa Ordinaria is the start of what of the genre that will later develop and become the biblical commentary. So the Glossa Ordinaria is where biblical commentating starts. And for those who have an instinctive, although Middle Ages wasn't interested in biblical exegesis, you've got a real problem in trying to explain if the Middle Ages isn't interested in biblical exegesis, how come that was where biblical commentary started? You've got a real historical problem. Biblical commentaries start in the Middle Ages. Well, that would seem to reflect a culture for which commenting the Bible was significant. So medieval culture gives rise to the genre that will become the biblical commentary. Of course, as we know now, biblical commentary is no longer a single genre. There are dozens of different things, all claiming to be biblical commentaries, all doing different things. At this point in time, there was more unity. Exposition of the text, practical application. Medievals operating what they call the fourfold sense of scripture. I'll give you here the literal, the allegorical, the tropological, and the anagogical. Each passage of scripture 
could be interpreted in four ways. The literal was, uh, if you like, what the text says. The literal meaning is always difficult to pin down because the reformers argue that the literal meaning is the meaning of the text, and yet sometimes they argue for an allegorical <coughs> meaning of the literal meaning. So, the literal meaning, if you like, what the text says. Allegorical is the doctrinal significance, what it teaches, what it says, what it teaches. Tropological, um, the moral and ethical, what you should do as a result, if you like. And the anagogical points you towards the eschaton. We might think, oh, it's highly speculative, this fourfold sense. But of course, it does a practical job very, very well. It does allow you, if you like, to bring out they would say is the full significance of the text. You might look back at many exegesis and say, oh, it's very speculative at points. But it does, if you like, mean that every text that you pull out is going to have a doctrinal and a practical application. <coughs> it has its roots way back in the patristic period. What you get from Aquinas onwards in the Middle Ages is an increasing emphasis upon the literal sense of the text. So 12th, 13th century developments are important for the Reformation because the Reformation stands, if you like, <coughs> at the end of increasing emphasis upon the literal sense of the text. But your average medieval schoolman would be highly trained in the use of this method as a way of bringing out the significance of any given biblical passage or text. The Aristotelian Renaissance, I'm going to talk about now. <clears throat> often said to students of intellectual history, the two great, really earth-shattering events of the last thousand years in terms of the way people really, really think, the Aristotelian Renaissance of the 12th, 13th century and the Enlightenment of the 17th, 18th century. The Reformation is in many ways a change of direction within established patterns, but these mark something <coughs> of watersheds in the way that thinking is done. And one can see that in the evidence of how University curricula change in the 12th century and how they change in the 18th century. That's the kind of impact um, that these things have. Aristotle, those of you unfamiliar with his name, Aristotle was the pupil of Plato. His date's 384 to 322. One of two, great, two greatest philosophers of the ancient world, the other one being Plato. Um, the famous painting of the Academy where Aristotle and Plato are walking along and Plato has his finger pointing heavenward because truth lies in the ideals. Aristotle has his finger pointing downwards because truth for him lies in the material world, indicating in a very simplistic way uh, the difference between the two. Aristotle is more of an empiricist than Plato. Aristotle's corpus was known somewhat within the early Middle Ages. Boethius, I mentioned in an earlier lecture, translated the logical works into Latin. Boethius, 5th, 6th century. Translated the logical works into Latin. Uh, from the 9th century onwards, Aristotle's logic enjoys increasing prominence and authority. Not surprising when you think that Aristotle's logic remained the basic approach to logic right down to the 19th century. It wasn't until a guy called Frege emerges in the late 19th century and is sort of discovered by Bertrand Russell that fundamental changes to the way logic is thought about were introduced. So it's not surprising that Aristotle's logic uh, is pretty significant in the Middle Ages because, if you like, it's like Newton's laws of gravity to a certain extent. Um, it's been refined by...
but much of the basic foundation of later logic is laid down there. 12th century sees increasing translations of other parts of Aristotle's corpus into Latin, particularly the metaphysics. Sometimes these translations come by a rather circuitous route. The knowledge of Greek is very, very limited in the, the West and the Middle Ages. Pretty much died out on the whole. So some of Aristotle's work, some of the translations that exist, were taken from Greek manuscripts. There is a rising knowledge of Greek at this point. Many, however, were taken from Arabic translations of Aristotle. <coughs> Arabs, too, were involved and interested in translating Aristotle. Why was Aristotle a source of interest? Well, first of all, he was authoritative in logic, so anything else he wrote must be of interest. Seems a fairly straightforward point. Secondly, Aristotle gives you the language and the ideas that allow you to organize your thought. What do you want to do in a university? You want to organize your thought. Aristotle, very useful for organizing. Thirdly, Aristotle raises in a profound way very, very serious questions which Christians themselves must address. Creation of the world, nature of God, nature of causation, all of these things. Metaphysics, by the way, gets its name because the metaphysics, I mean after physics, it was the book that Aristotle produced after he'd written the physics. So metaphysics just means after physics. It precipitates something of a crisis, however, as more and more of Aristotle is being translated he appears less and less compatible with Christianity. And the great question for the thinkers of the 12th and the 13th century is, how do we respond to Aristotle? This man that we regard as authoritative in logic, a man who's clearly no fool, a man whose thinking is very, very profound, who gives us coherent accounts of causality, necessity, all of the things that we're interested in, how do we, as Christians, relate to this thinking? This is where, of course, Thomas Aquinas will become significant, because he is the man who, more than anybody else, um, critiques Aristotle. And to an extent, though I, I, I think that the, the Aristotelian nature of Aquinas' thought has been much overplayed, to an extent brings some aspects of Aristotle into service of the Christian faith. So the Aristotelian renaissance then of the 12th century, the rediscovery of Aristotle raises serious and important questions for Christian thinkers. It also facilitates a kind of creative interface between Christian thinkers and the great thinkers in the other religious traditions. Aquinas' thinking dialogues in detail with a number of other important Jewish and Islamic thinkers, and I'll give you their names here. Solomon Ibn Gabarol, often known as Avichebron, Jewish thinker, 11th century. Moses ben Maimon, known as Maimonides, which is a Latinized form of the Greek meaning son of Maimon. Maimonides, 12th century to just the start of the 13th century. And then the two Islamic giants, Ibn Rushd, Avaroish, 1126 <coughs> to 98, and Ibn Sina, 
Avicenna. 980-1037. These men, significant commentators upon Aristotle, significant users of Aristotle within their own theological uh, worldviews. And what you get in the 12th century is a very interesting, 12th, 13th century, interesting attempts to grapple with the thinking of these men. When I taught at the University of Nottingham, I used to, for three or four years, I taught a very stimulating course with a Jewish colleague and a um, Christian who was also happened to be an Islamicist on um, Jewish, Islamic and Christian thought in the Middle Ages. <coughs> and a very, very interesting cross-fertilization between the three groups. So when you come to Aquinas and you read him, part of what he's doing is um, critiquing the use made by Aristotle of these four characters. Very, very interesting that it's one of the earliest, Aquinas represents, if you like, one of the earliest Christian thinkers to really engage seriously with Islamic thought. Engaging seriously with Islamic thought, and even with Jewish thought, is not something that Christian theology has been marked by over the years. Um, but here you have, in the 12th century, 13th century, men doing it. One of the reasons is, of course, it's at this point that the missionary movement being launched, if you like. There are missionaries going to North Africa, working with Muslim populations, needing handbooks that allow them to combat Islamic theology. So we tend not to think of, you know, we tend to think of the modern missionary movement as something that develops in the 18th, maybe 19th century. Um, goes right back to the 12th, 13th century. And there, I think, you get as much serious grappling with cross-cultural issues, if you like, though we use different language, uh, as one finds for many a year after that. So the Aristotelian Renaissance, then, raises a whole host of questions and brings Christian theology at an intellectual level into uh, relation with other thinkers and theologians within the broad uh, notion of Aristotelian uh, thinking. Just a little word on Aristotle. I've said it earlier on, I'll say it again. Don't be misled by the fact somebody uses Aristotle for, to be, into believing that there's some kind of coherent Aristotelian movement. There isn't. There's an article just been published in the Netherlands Archive of Church History by Richard Muller, where he, I think he really puts to death the idea of Aristotelianism in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. Yes, Aristotle is used, but he's used in a million different ways by a million different people. To talk about Aristotelianism is a deceptive misnomer. When people start talking about the Aristotelian worldview, you want to ask them for chapter and verse, because there are a dozen different worldviews claiming to be Aristotelian out there, all of them contradicting one another. We now come to the man I want to talk about in more detail next week, James <coughs> Aquinas. The book I've recommended that you get if you're interested in doing Aquinas as the book to read for the exam is this one published by Penguin. Um, my only criticism of it would be that it's very much focused upon his uh, intellectual, purely intellectual, theological stuff. I've copied you a couple of prayers that I'll distribute a little bit later on. You only get a little glimpse of the man's full sort of range reading this book because the focus is very much on philosophical and theological themes. But who was it? He's born in 1225, Rocca son of a nobleman in Italy. He was intended for the Benedictine order. Benedictine order, old, established. While he's studying, however, he decides to opt 
for the more recently founded order, the order that was founded in 1220, the Order of St. Dominic, the Dominicans. And his family don't like this. Be like the equivalent of your parents putting your names down for Princeton University you know, when you're born, and then you deciding that you want to go to Whittier College or something. Parents are very upset about this. There is social kudos involved in having your son within one of the elite religious orders. So Aquinas is attracted to Dominicans, decides that he will uh, travel to Paris where the Dominican order can protect him. He's received into the order, travel to Paris, be taken in by the order, then they protect him. On the way to Paris, an armed gang hired by his parents attack <laughs> the, um, the train, or whatever it would be, train, the sort of caravan or whatever it is, that's uh, moving towards Paris and kidnap him, take him back to the castle, and confine him for two years to try to persuade him to give up his desire to become a Dominican. So many of these guys, a bit like Luther, they have lives that you, know, you could make quite a good film out of. They are not ivory tower theologians. He's actually been kidnapped and all kinds of trouble. While he's there, we have an account of his life and the account of his formulae. He culminates in um, one night that his parents place a naked woman in his room in order to tempt him. But Aquinas, I suppose as all, as all good young men would, seizes a brand from the fire and chases her out of the room. <laughs> Whether it happened, we don't know, but it's, it's I, I mention it, but it's part of the sort of formulaic saints' lives idea. One of these saints, they always have the temptation of the flesh at some point, and they always come out uh, okay. And that night he has a dream, and the angel Gabriel comes down from heaven and padlocks up his private parts and says, you are to be celibate forever. And Aquinas commits himself then to a life of celibacy. And his parents, when they, they see the girl being chased from the room, they realize that the game is up, that he's committed to being a Dominican, and they allow him to go off and join the Dominicans. He goes to Paris, where he studies under Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great. Albert the Great, fine mind. I guess his misfortune was um, that his pupil was ultimately to be much greater than he was. Uh, Albert the Great, greatest mind of his generation until one day into the class comes young Aquinas and you know, he must have known fairly early on in his training of Aquinas that here was the man who would go much further than he would. So Albert the Great serves under him in Paris and moves with him then to, uh, um, where does he move to? Bologna. Moves to Bologna with Albert the Great. Uh, no, not Bologna. I think it was Cologne. Goes to Cologne, not Bologna. Getting even confused with Umberto Eco, I think, there. Um, goes to Cologne and studies under Albert at Cologne, and then um, becomes a teacher himself. Returns to Paris around about 1251, 1252, and starts his career proper as a medieval theologian. What does he do first? Does he start writing great tome of systematic theology? No. He gives a series of lectures on biblical books. In this case, Isaiah and Jeremiah. <coughs> Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then he moves on to do his mandatory um, exercise on the sentences, produces a commentary on the sentences. It's very interesting that Aquinas' thinking, when he writes the commentary on the sentences, um, is different to the thinking that comes through in his later theological works. In his commentary on the sentences, he really adopts what we would regard as a semi-Pelagian position. 
seems to allow human will an absolutely decisive say in salvation. That it's you know, entirely autonomously up to you to accept or reject God's grace. He will move in that position in the Summa Contra Gentiles and in the Summa Theologiae. But he produces his commentary on the sentences and he also produces the work that will become some ways the manifesto of his theology, De Ente et Essentia. Concerning being an essence. And if you want to read something by Aquinas that captures his philosophy in a nutshell, this is the thing to read. It's about 30, 40 pages long. He argues for a distinction between existence and essence, that what you are is separable from the fact that you are. With one exception. In God, what God is, is not distinguishable from the fact that he is. He is the only necessary being. For God, it is of his very essence that it is necessary that he exists. That is not the case for you or I. We are born, we live, we die. Humanity goes on. Humanity has an existence outside of our individual existence. But for God, his existence and his essence, what he is and that he is, are in a mysterious way identified. And a lot of his doctrine of God is developed in the light of that. We'll talk more about Aquinas' thought uh, next week. And for what it's worth, I think that much of the criticism of Thomas that occurs in later writers is not strictly applicable to Thomas. The problem comes, I think, in the Reformation when Cajetan, Cajetan, Thomas de Vio, the man who interrogates Luther, writes a commentary on being in essence. And I think it's Cajetan's commentary that creates uh, much less of a distinction between man and God and sets up the grounds for human autonomy in a way that Thomas Aquinas never did. Problem is that when many people come to read Thomas now, they read later Thomism back into him. For me, Thomas seems to be a pretty consistent anti-Pelagian thinker. And it's later Thomism that blurs some of the important distinctions that Thomas makes. One should never hold people accountable for their followers. Not all the time, anyway. So right about this time, he starts the Summa Contra Gentiles. The only complete, comprehensive system of Christian theology that he produces. The Summa is essentially a summation of the whole of Christian theology. These, if you like, are the earliest direct precursors of modern systematics that we've got. And the Summa Contra Gentiles, in four books, is the only complete system that Aquinas ever produces. He produces it as a handbook for missionaries going to North Africa. What is it? It's an attempt to give them some kind of handle on the Islamic notion of God in relation to the Christian notion of God. First three books focus very much on what Thomas regarded as kind of common themes, the unity of God, God as creator, these kind of things. And the last book focuses upon the Trinity. But it was produced as a handbook for monastic missionaries going to North Africa to work among Muslims. And it is Aquinas' only complete statement of theology. 1259, he travels to Italy. And again, we think it's a little bit like that bit at the start of the, uh, one of the Gospels where he just referred to, and you know, Mary makes the journey through the hills to see her cousin Elizabeth. 40 miles through the mountains, very dangerous, but just there in a single verse, you pass over it and it means nothing. And this guy's travelling all over Europe at a time where travelling is difficult and dangerous. 
1259 goes to uh, Italy, serves at various houses and ends up in 1261, 15, uh, 1261 at Orvieto, where he's commissioned by the Pope Urban IV to write various works. Aquinas as a man was physically large apparently, the big guy, he's known as the ox, is his nickname. But he had a, he was also a workaholic, he had the capacity of dictating several books at once. Apparently, he would sit in his study, and he would sit on a, on a stool, and he would have four or five secretaries around him, and he would dictate a paragraph to one, and then move and dictate a paragraph to another for another book. A bit like those great chess, you know, sort of Gary Kasparov or somebody, you know, he's playing six, six competent chess players at once, and he would do it all and carry on his head. Aquinas was clearly a bit like this when it came to uh, theological debate and discussion, um, and there are stories of him having outbursts at dinner where suddenly he'd stand up and say, oh, I've nailed such and such a heresy. And he would think, you know, he's obviously always <laughs> clicking over in his mind. Um, not a great guy to have at parties, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, 1265, he moves to a place called Santa Sabina, where he's conducted head of a study house. This is a suburb of Rome, study house for the Dominicans. And then 1268 to 72, returns to Paris, where he holds one of the Dominican chairs of theology. And there he lectures on Matthew and John. If you look in the library, I don't know if there are any here, but some of Aquinas' lectures and commentaries have been translated. You get hold of them. And you can see that scholasticism was never a theology pursued in isolation from biblical exegesis, because these guys did both systematic theology and exegetical work at the same time. It's ironic that in a day and age where people do either one or the other, you're either a systematician or an exegete, we tend to look back and sneer at the medieval guys as being scholastics. It's a fact. They did both in their day far more competently than most individuals do both today. Just a very interesting uh, chronological snobbery, I think, kicks in at points. Constantly preaching as well, much in demand as a preacher. And many of his uh, sermons survive, we recast. Uh, by editors into commentaries on books of the Bible. Then, on the 6th of December, 1273, he's officiating at the Mass, and he has some kind of mystical experience. Nobody knows, only Aquinas would know uh, what this experience was about. But he has this incredible mystic experience that precipitates a kind of breakdown of some kind. And he lays aside his pen and says, but he will not write any more. He said, because compared to the things I've seen and heard, everything that I've written seems now but straw. What he means by that is not that everything you see, everything he's written is rubbish. It's a relative phrase. Compared to what he's seen and experienced, everything that he's written so far seems like rubbish. And he lays down his pen and writes nothing else, leaving his greatest work, the Summa Theologiae, unfinished. And he dies a couple of months later, on the way to a, a papal conference, he dies on the road. I think it's sort of appropriate in many ways that some of the theologia remains unfinished, because it does capture something of the mystical dimension of Aquinas. There's always this element in him that God cannot be grasped in many ways, and he eludes being grasped and comprehended. So the Summa Theologia is open-ended, kind of looks out into eternity and infinity. But that was Aquinas then. His contributions, um, we'll talk more about this next week, 
His greatest <coughs> contribution to the church is that he helps defuse the Aristotle problem. One of the problems with Aristotle is he seems to believe the world goes on forever. The world is eternal. There is some debate among Aristotelian scholars as well, that's exactly what Aristotle was saying, but that's certainly how he was picked up in the Middle Ages. The world is eternal. Problem for Christian theologians who want to appropriate Aristotle. <sighs> Creation of the world is a basic aspect of Christian theology. What do you do with it? Some, like Bonaventure, will argue, we'll talk about Bonaventure next week, will argue that you can prove by reason that the world must have been created. Aquinas takes a somewhat different tack. In almost Kantian terms, he demonstrates that you can't prove one way or the other that the world was created by reason. That it's, a, it's an item of faith, if you like. And what Aquinas does is demarcate things that can be known outside of revelation and things that you must have revelation for. He's often accused of synthesizing Christianity with um, Aristotelianism. Well, I've already raised a question that's a problematic in terms of the definition of Aristotelianism. But often, the argument proceeds on the basis that he uses Aristotelian terminology. It's not a very good argument. We all use terminology that comes from somewhere else, and we appropriate it for our own uses. great example in Aquinas is what he does with transubstantiation. 1215. Fourth Lateran Council, transubstantiation. The word is used for the first time. What does it mean? Transubstantiation. Bread and wine. Moment of consecration. What happens? It takes on the substance of the body and blood. You get this in a, in a what Aquinas does, he's born obviously after the, the, the Lateran Council, but he comes to give a rationale for this and shows how one can use the language of Aristotle to try to clarify what's going on here. The bread and the wine, as they're consecrated, the substance changes. The substance of the bread becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The substance of the wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's important to realise, of course, that the body and blood are in both elements. It's not that the blood and the body are separated and you get one in the bread and one in the wine. The whole is contained under both. But what Aquinas says is the accidents remain in place. <coughs> Aristotle, you see, divided the, he said the world. Well, the world is a combination of form and matter. Form and matter. Substantial form and matter. Prime matter is just matter, undefined. It never exists on its own. It can only exist united to a form. So, I don't know, this window. It has the form of a window. Prime matter linked to the substantial form of a window. That's what makes it glass, it's what makes it a window. Don't mistake form for shape, by the way. Form does not equal shape. Form is the principle of existence. If you die, your shape remains the same. Form changes. If I drop dead now, I've ceased to be me, I've become a corpse. My form has changed, even though my shape will remain, probably speaking, the same. So, Aristotle divides the world up into form and matter. He says that uh, you have lots of lumps of prime matter floating around. They can be united to substantial forms, and that's what makes things what they are. You don't know, however, substantial forms directly as substantial forms. You know them by their accidents. Hardness, blackness, smell, touch, taste. These things refer to the accidental properties. So you know it's a window, not because if you like, uh, I can sense the form, but because I can sense the accidents of the form. If it looks like a window, acts like a window, 
breaks like a window. Conclusion, it's a window. Well, I know through accidental properties. So, Aquinas picks up on this and he says, well, what, what's happening in transubstantiation is uh, the, the form, the substantial form is changing, but the accidents remain in place. The bread and the wine changes the body and blood, but what happens is the accidents remain in place. And you will often see this uh, quoted in Protestant stuff as an Aristotelian fudge. This is what you get when you mix Aristotle with Christian theology. Problem. Problem. And Aristotle is very, very clear on this. If it looks like a window, feels like a window, it breaks like a window, it's a window. That's because accidents don't exist in a vacuum. Accidents exist because they are linked to a relevant substance. If it looks like bread, if it tastes like bread, if it smells like bread, if you leave it on the altar for three weeks and it's eaten by mice or goes mouldy, it's bread. If it tastes like wine, if it looks like wine, if it smells like wine, if you drink two gallons of it and you get drunk or you die of liver failure or something, the conclusion is it's wine. That would be Aristotle's approach. Is that Aquinas' approach? No. Aquinas says all yeah, the, the great strength of the sacrament for Aquinas is the fact that empirical means of knowing what's going on are no guide to what's really happening. It's not an Aristotelian fudge at all. What he's done is he's taken the language of Aristotle and he's using it in a way that Aristotle would have repudiated. And one of my arguments later on in the course is that Protestants, the exalt John Wycliffe as a hero, and rightly so, I think. But Wycliffe's criticism of transubstantiation is based on the fact that he is a far more consistent Aristotelian than Thomas Aquinas is. Wycliffe makes the simple point that if accidents give you no guide to what's really there, hey, we could be bunches of accidents. You don't have any safe knowledge of anything. Radical skepticism is the only product of that kind of thinking. So Aquinas then, he thinks very carefully about Aristotle. He marks off areas where Aristotle is useful, where Aristotle is not useful. And he does take on board Aristotelian language, but then applies it in a way that is foreign to Aristotle. It makes our job that much harder as historians and as theologians that it's not enough to say, oh, he uses the language of Aristotle, therefore he's Aristotelian. It doesn't work that way. Not just a question of seeing where words come from, it's a question of seeing how they're used in particular contexts. Now, could we say that the, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation is, is already there in place, and, when it, and what Aquinas does is uses those categories and language to clarify yeah. the doctrine, rather than Aristotle coming <coughs> first yeah. and transubstantiation following? Yes, I think that's the case. Um, the, the, the doctrine is there, it's formalized by the, the Lateran Council. What Aquinas is doing is utilizing the language of Aristotle to produce a rationale for it. So one could argue that what he's doing is the classic Augustinian thing, saying transubstantiation, you just believe it. You can't work from rational premises and reach transubstantiation. You just believe it because the church has told us that this is the way to, the way to go. But what we do with that is then try to think about the internal dynamics of the doctrine, how it can be explicated on its own terms. And this is the, the route that he takes to do it. The point I'm really trying to make here, I guess, is, is simply the one of beware of Protestant cheap shots about Catholic theology. 
Don't get me wrong, I've said this before in class, if I thought Catholic theology was basically correct, I would be a Catholic. I'm not a postmodernist today, I was brought up in this tradition, no, that's just my tradition. No, some traditions are truer than others, I think. That's why I belong to one and not, and not another. But there is so much rubbish written at a popular Protestant level about things like transubstantiation and the impact of Aristotle, etc. You've got to be very careful. Aquinas is not an idiot. If he was in this class now, he'd be able to take on anybody in this room and knock them into a cocktail. Whether he was right or wrong, winning an argument is often not a question of being right or wrong, it's a question of knowing more than the opposition. And knowing more doesn't necessarily make you right. So what I'm saying is, I mean, many of you guys are going to be going out to the pastorate and things like this. Don't think that the latest you know, tract from Charles Chick or whatever is going to give you a, a coherent and good argument for refuting a Catholic that might cross your path. You might find that he knows more about Christian orthodoxy than you do. You know, you've got to... Catholicism is very sophisticated. And it's very sophisticated because it's very clever people put it together over the years. And it's crucially important that we as Protestants, whatever we do is we make sure that we understand what they're saying and what they think they're saying, not what we think they're saying. We go back and say, this is how Catholics think, and this is why they think the way they do. We've got to be... Sympathetic perhaps has the wrong connotations, but you're not going to get anywhere if you simply misrepresent people and knock down straw men. So what I suppose what I, part of the agenda what I'm trying to do in this course is, first of all, flag up to you that not all of the Middle Ages is bad, but also bring out the, the sincerity, the sophistication um, of the way many of these people wrestled <coughs> with very important issues. And I think this is, you know, trans you know, you know Spurgeon's argument. Oh, ho, 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 I can disprove transubstantiation. Just drink a lot of consecrated wine and you get drunk. <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's a good gag in a sermon. But it's not really going to persuade any Roman Catholic that transubstantiation is, is faulty. Because it doesn't actually accurately represent what transubstantiation is about. Priests just go about and say, well, getting drunk is just an ac accidental potency of the whole thing. Nothing to do with the actual substance. Uh, and it's a miracle, so why should normal rules apply? So that's sort of what I'm trying to, 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 to work to here. I want to just hand out now, um, we're slightly short time, but I, I want to just give out a couple of, um, couple of texts just for you to look at, take them away and, and look at. Um, give you an angle on Aquinas that um, perhaps we don't always get, actually we take a whole lot send them back. <clears throat> One of the ways of getting inside the head of theologians most effectively is often to look at their prayers. Um, certainly the case with somebody like Calvin. When you look at uh, Calvin's commentaries, his lectures, always ends in a prayer. It gives you a great idea of what really makes him tick. And here I've just copied for you uh, a couple of Aquinas' prayers. It's from a nice collection of his writings by Mary Clark title an Aquinas reader. It's just been reprinted, I think it's an old book, but it has the, the advantage of many other collections of Aquinas that Mary Clark isn't just interested in the philosophy. One of the reasons why Aquinas is popular today is that he's taken seriously by certain analytic philosophers because of his analysis of language and things like that. So a lot of the collections that are reprinted of Aquinas' writings reflect, if you like, the synchronic context of the person putting the collection together. He's being appropriated for a particular philosophical purpose. Mary Clark gives you a wider 
perspective on Aquinas because she picks up on some of the commentaries, some of the prayers, some of the religious things as well. Um, I give you, there's a little uh, bit at the start, his exposition of the Lord's Prayer. This would have started off as um, a sermon on the Lord's Prayer. Anybody tempted to think that theology of the medievals is simply a dry, arid intellectual activity? Read what he says about the Lord's Prayer here. I think you'll find much that coincides with uh, views that you probably hold yourself. Um, I've told you the story, haven't I, about the, the Jesuit handbook of casuistry? But, uh, is it this class I told that one to or another class? A friend of mine works on casuistry in the 16th, 17th century and was reading a Puritan book of casuistry and suddenly realised he'd read it before but he knew he'd never got this book out of the, the catalogue. It was an old rare book. Suddenly realised that what he was reading was a Jesuit book of casuistry <clears throat> that had had all the bits about the Pope and the Mass knocked out and had been reprinted under the name of Puritan. So he went and checked, and the Jesuit had published this thing first. The Puritan had obviously thought it was, generally speaking, a good idea. Knocked all the dodgy Roman Catholic bits out and reprinted it as his own work. And then as a horrible twist to the story, the Puritan had been involved in the committee that had hunted down and had the Jesuit executed. Um, so it's a sort of particularly uh, awful story, that. But it does show you, I think, how on certain issues sometimes um, there is common ground. So I give you the, uh, the thing there on prayer. I've given you a selection of his prayers. Um, one of them, I noticed I've only given you half of, is a prayer to the Virgin Mary. As I, I said, some things we have in common, some things very, very different. Aquinas stands at the start in many ways of detailed reflection upon the role of Vir the Virgin Mary in theology in the Middle Ages. The prayer I particularly like is um, the prayer before writing or preaching on 537. I used to give this to students <coughs> in Nottingham uh, before the exam and say, you know, there are two ways you can try and succeed at the exam. You can either work hard and revise, or you could just, you know, be lazy all term, but use Aquinas' prayer at the very end um, and hope that it works. Um, you know, it's your choice. How many pages Three. Three. Got them. Just look at this prayer before writing preaching. O ineffable creator, who has wisely appointed nine choirs of angels, setting them above the heavens in marvellous order, who has wonderfully established the parts of the universe, who is the fountain of light and wisdom, the first cause, shed upon the darkness of my mind the light of your love, and remove me from the twofold darkness of sin and ignorance in which I was born. You make eloquent the tongues of babes, instruct my tongue, pour the grace of your blessing upon my lips, give keenness and understanding, retention and memory, facility in preaching and interpreting sublime realities and a wide vocabulary as well. I always like that, and a wide vocabulary as well. Um, inspire my beginning, direct my progress, bring all to an end, you who art true God and man, who livest and reignest, one God, world without end. You can't read a prayer like that and come away thinking, well, Aquinas is just a dry scholastic. There's a dimension to the man there that you miss if you just focus on the philosophical side of things. Unlike Ansel, he doesn't litter these things throughout his writings, but hey, he's a university lecturer. We don't expect him to do that, but it's there all the same. The interest in preaching, the interest in prayer, the interest in devotion, it's there if you care to look for it. Um, and there are a couple of other prayers there that I'll leave you to look at for yourselves. We'll talk more about Aquinas in detail next week. I want to introduce you to him today because he's very much the product of the changes that take place in theological education in the 12th century. 
Um, and he is the man, if you like, who epitomizes those changes uh, more than anybody else.